All right, gang, take your Bible and open it to Acts chapter 9, if you will, please. Acts chapter 9. Last time we introduced a brand new series of messages entitled Back to School. And the plan or the program behind this idea is that we want to revisit and reaffirm some of those basic, fundamental, foundational even, biblical truths that we build our faith on. Uh, Back to school involves going back and revisiting the biblical doctrine, the principle uh, that if you're a brand new person to the faith walk, it's going to help you establish your life compass. If you've been at this for a while, it's just going to reaffirm some of the things that you already know, you already believe, and will also benefit you in your faith walk. Last time we talked about the problem of me. What in the world is wrong with me, right? Uh, When you look around and mass shootings are now in the news again, and and people have asked me this week, Pastor Mike, why does this happen? Well, we answered that question last time. It's the total depravity of mankind. The reason man does evil to fellow man is because we are totally depraved, for all have sinned and fallen short of of God's glory. It's interesting when we've spent 50 years, five decades or more even, pushing God away from the public square and and pushing God out of our public education. Uh, We've lost any sense of accountability to God. So if man no longer feels accountable to a holy and just God, we shouldn't be surprised when man does such tragic and despicable evil to fellow man. This time we're going to talk about prayer. What could possibly be more basic, more fundamental than a message or a a statement regarding prayer? Today, I want you to understand a biblical understanding. I want you to grasp maybe for the first time in your faith walk what a prayer life should be. In my lifetime, I have literally heard hundreds of messages on the subject of prayer. There are thousands of books thousands of books that are dedicated to teaching us how to pray. Uh, If you've attended church all your life, then thousands of times you've sat in a service like this and heard someone pray. You've heard someone do what I'm going to talk about today because prayer is an integral part of any worship experience. Now, as I've grown older, my prayer life has changed dramatically. When I was a little kid and asked to pray in Sunday school, you know how I prayed? I prayed like I heard my dad pray. He called God, Dear Heavenly Father. So that's how I started my prayer, Dear Heavenly Father. And he ended his prayer in Jesus' name, amen. So I ended my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. And typically what was sandwiched in between was a long list of my requests, a long list of my asks of God. When I got a little older and I got into high school, the flanker on my high school football team, his name was Chris, and he prayed conversationally, which was a way of prayer that I had never heard before. Maybe you grew up in a very ritualized or uh, liturgical setting that was very structured, and everybody stood up maybe or knelt down, and they said the same prayer, and they said it out loud. Well, this guy, he prayed to God as if he was talking to me. I mean, he spoke conversationally to God, and that was intriguing to me. And then I went away to school and I met a guy, and we became really tight. His name was Lance. Uh, Lance, as a matter of fact, is a pastor out in Texas uh, to this day. And Lance would go out in the evening at the farm where we worked together, and he would just leave his eyes open, and he'd look up into the stars, and he would just talk to God. And I just thought that was so cool because I had grown up in a church where every time you were about to pray, the preacher said something like this, now every head bowed, every eye closed, we're going to pray. 
So I thought when you pray, you bow your head, you close your eyes, that's the way you do it. It's like some form or some position you need to be. But Lance taught me otherwise. Uh, there was this man in a church I worked in while I was in school. His prayers were very repetitive. He addressed God as dear, gracious, heavenly father. And it, it became ryth rhythmic as he prayed. And, and I don't, I'm not trying to make fun of that gentleman. And, and I certainly don't want to be irreverent regarding prayer. But I mean, like every three seconds, it was dear, gracious, heavenly father, dear, gracious, heavenly father, dear, gracious, heavenly father. And we used to sit there and count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. New record, 27, you know. Dr. Lee Robertson was the founder and the president of the university and the seminary that I attended in Chattanooga. And he was an older man with silver hair. He was tall and thin, and he wore dark black double-breasted suits. And he would stand in a chapel setting with 6,000 students in a giant auditorium. And he'd lift his hands to God, and with a very deep voice, he would begin to address God. And it was like standing there hearing Moses pray. I mean, it was incredible. Now, as I got older, I came to realize at some point that a really good prayer makes somebody in the audience or in the group say amen, right? If you're praying and while you're praying, somebody goes amen, man, you are on the right track, right? And, and the older I got, the more, especially like you're in a small group setting and there's only like eight of you or something and you're praying and while you're praying, somebody goes, mm. man, that's a good feeling. I must be praying an impressive prayer to God. If you can pull off the double whammy, mm, amen. You might as well quit praying right then because you have peaked, right? But it was only as a full-grown adult pastor in this church not that many years ago that I began to dive into this book and say, God, teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. I've heard a lot of sermons, read a lot of books, prayed a lot of prayers, but exactly what is it we do when we pray? Now, look, if you are one of those people who feels like when you pray, you're at the, one of those self-checkout lines at the grocery store, that's kind of like what your prayer sounds like, and you're getting a little tired of that. Uh, if you're one of those people who finds yourself repeating yourself over and over, you say the same things all the time, and you start to feel guilty about that, so you try to find different words, and you substitute phrases for another because you think you're kind of fooling God. God, I'm not praying the same prayer I prayed yesterday. Yes, you are. It's for the same stuff. You're just using different words, and it's bothering you. Look, you've come to the right place. If that's the way you pray, then honestly, my advice to you is the title of my message today, Stop Praying now, because that's not prayer. Prayer is not, God, I want this. God, I need that. God, take care of that. God, I wish you'd fix that. God, help me here. God, do this for me. God, here it is. Request, 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 request. Prayer is not, here's my list. 19 items. Number one, God. Number two, God, I need God. Number three, that's not prayer. That's not prayer. And I hope to show you that today. What we're, need, what we're in need of, church, I think is a reality check, okay? Just a reality check. I want you to be honest with yourself and ask you yourself how you pray. I'm really hoping that there's somebody here today that's never prayed. I'm hoping that there's somebody here that would say, you know what? I listen to people pray and I believe that, you know, prayer is real, but I'm just not a praying kind of person because if that's you, then today I'm going to show you how to begin praying the right way. Some overemphasize what we'll call the faith element when they pray. To some people, faith is the key ingredient to a powerfully profound prayer life. It's all about believing hard enough. Maybe you grew up in a church where when someone asked for prayer, 
It was all about believing hard enough that God was going to give you what you're asking for. Some of you, and I don't, again, mean to offend anyone, some of you are under the impression that if you can get other people to pray with you and ask for the same thing you're asking for yourself, God will have no choice. If you can get all your Facebook friends to pray the same prayer for you, you're praying for yourself, you're going to push God over the edge. He's going to have to answer that prayer because in your mind, prayer is all about believing hard enough. Well, believing hard enough is important. And the faith element is critical to prayer. Jesus said so. In fact, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Wow, that sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? But that's not all there is to prayer. Some overemphasize the needs-desires element. You know, the Bible tells us to ask. The Bible tells us to present our requests. Paul said it. Jesus said it. So some come to the conclusion that, hey, fire away because God instructs me. God expects me to present my request, to present my needs, my desires. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. Him who knocks, the door will be open. But it's not all about the needs, desires element of prayer. Some overemphasize the sovereignty element of prayer. I mean, after all, isn't God sovereign? Sovereignty means that God is in complete and total control. Nothing happens outside the purpose, plan, or will of God. So if God's already established a way, if God has already established a plan, why would I waste my time praying about anything? It's already sealed. It's a done deal. Well, the Bible has something to say about that too. It comes from the book of Psalm chapter 33, verse 10. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people's. What is my prayer life? What is your prayer life if it's not a recitation of my purposes? God, it is my purpose to fix this. It is my plan to solve that. I'm hoping you'll join me in my goal of achieving or acquiring the other. He goes on, but the plans of the Lord stand forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. The fact is the Bible emphasizes all three. The Bible emphasizes the faith element. The Bible emphasizes the needs, desires element. And the Bible also emphasizes the sovereignty element. But it's time for a reality check, church. I, I just want to be the one to say it to you. God's not all about you getting what you want. God is all about you getting what he wants for you. Now, how does prayer fit into that scenario? So kind of in summary, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God's plan, his way, his will is established. They are not challenged by puny old me and my prayers. He definitely loves you. In fact, multiple times, not just Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, but Paul in Philippians chapter 4, the author of Hebrews, they all say the same thing. Present your requests to God. Enter boldly into the throne room of God and speak your peace. And finally, he also requires faith, but he wants you to trust him, him, 
Not faith in faith, not faith in how hard you believe, not faith in how many of your Facebook friends are praying the same thing. God wants you to pray in faith so that even when he says no, you still have faith in him. The late Dr. Donald Barnhouse taught us something. And really, in my estimation, it's the only way to balance all three of those. The faith element, the prayer, the need request element, and the sovereignty element. The only way to balance that is by an understanding that prayer is really about relationship, not request. Three words, everybody understands that. But I'm telling you, the day you grasp this, your prayer life's going to change. The day you implement this in how you pray, your prayer life is going to change. You see, balance can only be accomplished when you understand that prayer is not about requests. It's about relationship. Dr. Donald Barnhouse taught us this lesson. He was a very famous pastor and author. He wrote a series of commentaries that I use periodically when I'm preparing messages. He pastored a huge church in Philadelphia, and he walked into his church one Sunday morning, and he took the pulpit, and he stunned a packed crowd when he smacked the pulpit, and he said... Prayer changes nothing. You could have heard a pin drop. I mean, can you imagine if the theme of this message today was prayer changes nothing, and you walked out of here and somebody met you in the restaurant and said, hey, what would your preacher talk about today? He taught us that prayer changes nothing. I would be like the black sheep of ministry in this community, right? But he did so for effect because he was trying to teach us that God is sovereign and God is in control and God knows best. That's why he says no to certain things we ask. I would disagree with only one tiny element to that statement. Dr. Barnhouse said prayer changes nothing. I say, well, wait a minute. Prayer changes me. I mean, how many times have I prayed the same prayer Felt guilty for doing so because I've been asking for the same thing for so long. But then something amazing happens. God changes me. I start to think about it differently. New thoughts come to my mind. A new perspective that I had not known before dawns on me. You see, prayer can change me as well. That's one of the major reasons that prayer is such a therapy counteract anxiety. Listen very carefully, okay? I'm not a doctor. Don't presume to be one. You know that. However, some of you could sit down that anxiety medication if you learned how to pray. Some of you could leave behind the worry, the frustration, the anxiety if you learned how to pray. But remember, it's not about requests. About relationship. There's a very famous and prominent Roman Catholic Frenchman named Francois Fenelon. And he wrote, and I quote, listen, tell God all that is on your heart. As one unloads one's heart, all of its pleasures, all of its pains, to a dear friend. He goes on, tell him your troubles that he may comfort you. Tell him your longings, that he may purify them. Tell him about your temptations, that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart, that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved tastes for evil, your instability. If you thus pour out all your weaknesses, 
all your needs, all your troubles. There will be no lack of what to say. You will never exhaust the subject. I don't know about you, but I've made up my mind that I'm going to revolution my pr- revolutionize my prayer life. And I've gone into my office early in the morning before daylight, and I've knelt at my desk chair, and I've buried my face in my hands, and I've begun to pour it out to God. And I stood up and I said, wow, that was a good time of prayer. I look at the clock. I've been at it four minutes. Right? Were we to learn to pray, as this gentleman describes, there would be no lack of what to say. We would commune with God in a way that is relational, not request-driven. Here's the big deal, and I, I put it in the program. I'll throw it on the screen. Prayer is about who God is and who I am, not about a certain outcome. Now, maybe that's what you might expect someone like me to say during a message on prayer, but hear me out and think about it in your own prayer life. The Bible teaches that prayer is about who God is, what he wants, his plan and purpose, and who I am, what I need, where I am in my faith. But it's not about a certain outcome. Now, if you were honest with yourself, think about how you pray How often is your prayer life driven by a certain outcome? When you start to pray, is it not because you've already established where you want things to wind up? We're praying about a certain outcome, and that's the light in which we cast our requests. That's why, again, I say prayer, biblical prayer, is about relationship, not requests. In fact, I would argue that more important than how we pray or even that we pray, is why we would pray in the first place. To me, the most foundational basic principle, the question you need to ask is, why would I pray in the first place? Now, I want to help you with this today. And so I put this little chart in the program. Now, you probably don't have a pen with you right now, and I'm glad because I don't want you to do it right now. I want you to think it through later on this afternoon. Using that program and that little chart, I want you to ask yourself, how do I pray? I've given you a little scale of 1 to 10. The lower the number, that means you favor that side of the equation. The higher the number, you favor the other side of the equation. For instance, what were, if I were to ask you, when you pray, do you pray to gain control or to give up control. When you pray, do you pray to gain control? If it's all about, I've lost control, God help me get it back. God, this is out of bounds, I don't like it, it's uncomfortable, it makes me angry, frustrated, and anxious. I've lost control, help me regain control. If that's the way you pray every time and all the time, then your number would be one. If on the other hand you pray to give up control, God, I know I'm not in charge, and I've been praying for the same thing over and over again, and you're either not listening, uh, or I'm saying the wrong words, but that's really not what it's about. What it's about is my coming to grips, the idea that you're in charge. If that's the way you pray every time and all the time, then it'd be a number 10. I'll tell you, I'm neither a one nor a 10. I'm not a two nor a nine. I'm somewhere in the middle. Sometimes my prayers are to gain control. Sometimes my prayers are to give up control. Here's number two. When you pray, do you pray to express yourself to God? God, this is how I feel. God, this is very, very bad. I don't like it one bit. Or do you pray to better know God? 
God, teach me what I'm supposed to see here because my circumstance is not changing. I'd love for it to change, but it's not. How do you pray? Here's question number three. When you pray, do you pray to influence God? Again, if we can just get enough Facebook friends to pray the same thing I'm praying, I am certain God's going to grant that request. Listen, gang, there's nothing biblical about that idea. You may have been taught it in a church setting like this. Someone might have used a verse or a piece of a verse to try and communicate that principle, but that's not biblical prayer because that's all about the request and not about the relationship. Are you trying to influence God or are you trying to gain perspective? Here's number four. When you pray, are you praying to get what you want or to grow as you should? Number five, when you pray, are you praying to find a solution or to better know yourself? And finally, when you pray, do you only pray in emergencies or do you pray consistently? Acts chapter 9 contains a miraculous display of God's purpose and his power. If we're going to talk about prayer, we've got to address those too. If we're going to talk about biblical prayer, we want God to use his power for our purposes. We want God to use his power to adjust his purposes, redirect his goals to reflect ours. In Acts chapter 9, there's a miraculous display of each. We always need to be reminded of that when it comes to praying for miraculous things. God does what he wants to do for his reasons first not necessarily ours. You see, that's what sovereignty is by definition. You see, in an effort to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 9, the first century early church, God granted the apostles the ability to override the laws of the universe. That's why they were able to heal people who had been sick or who were paralyzed. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, Peter raises a woman from the dead. Now, Sometimes, and this is probably because I'm not shy about admitting publicly from this stage, there's a little streak of skepticism in me. I'm not a super religious guy, okay? But sometimes people will ask me, well, Pastor Mike, do you believe in miracles? Pastor Mike, do you believe that God can heal my mother? The answer to that question is absolutely I do. There are people in this church that even now I pray for a miracle from God. I met with a gentleman yesterday who is dying of cancer and doctors and medications have reached their limits and I pray that God would touch that man. He's not, he's too young to die. So yes, I absolutely believe in miracles, but I want you to understand church, it's different today than it was back then. The question is why? Again, following the ascension of Jesus, after he had been on the earth post-resurrection for 40 days, he sent his apostles out as messengers, and he gave them authority so they could go into a town, they could preach his message, they could share the gospel, and to authenticate that message, he gave them the ability to touch blind eyes and make them see, to take someone who's never walked and give them strength enough to not just walk, but to run, even to raise a woman from the dead. You see, when that happened, people were willing to listen to their account of Jesus Christ, right? 
If I could heal your child, wouldn't that give some authority to the words I share on Sunday morning? Wouldn't you sit up and take note if I could walk into your home and touch your father and heal him? That's what the disciples were capable of doing. It established their authority in the early church because remember, I have something today that they didn't have, and that's this. Today, when I speak in an arena or circumstance like this, as long as I stay true to this book, that is my authority. But Paul didn't have that. John didn't have that. And so God gave them, them the ability to do miraculous signs and wonders. Look, it's the pattern of scripture, if you know your Bible. Every great era, E-R-A, every great era of the Bible uh, historic timeline began with a powerful demonstration of signs and wonders. You can go to the very beginning. There's the creation era. What are the first few pages of the Bible about if it's not a profoundly powerful a statement from God through miraculous creation and design that he is God. But you know what? As you read the remaining 47, 48 chapters, all the way to chapter 50, the miracles begin to fade. The miracles begin to decline. And then we're introduced to the Exodus era in the book of Exodus. You know about Exodus, right? God is going to ransom his, his people from their bondage in Egypt, and what happens? You ever heard of the 10 plagues of Egypt? Moses raises his staff and the Red Sea parts and separates. But as the book of Exodus unfolds, the miracles begin to fade. And then we're introduced to the prophets in the historic timeline of the Old Testament. You ever hear of a man by the name of Elijah, Samuel, Elisha, Isaiah? These men worked miraculous signs and wonders, but not all prophets did. In fact, they began to fade and wane over time. In fact, between the Testaments, Malachi in the Old Testament, Matthew, first book of the New, there were 400 years of silence from God. No revelation, no miraculous signs of wonders, at least, that are recorded. But then Matthew chapter 1, along comes a baby born in a manger. The birth of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth. The sign in the stars, the wise men, the magi, the life, the teaching, the miracles of Jesus. A new era had begun. And when Jesus ascended, he commissioned the apostles to do the same. You notice in the, Old, in the New Testament, as the history of the early church is gaining momentum, the miracles begin to fade and subside. Not the miracles themselves, but those gifted with the ability to do so. Do you understand that if I had the gift of apostleship like John, I probably wouldn't be here today. I'd be at the hospital clearing it out one wing at a time. You understand that? That's how they healed. When John looked at a man and said, rise and walk, he didn't stagger to his feet. He stood up and he walked. You see? The Bible teaches that one day, during the time of the great tribulation, a new great era will begin, and that time, too, will begin with miracles and wonders. Now, I've got just a few minutes. Let me read this text, and we'll wrap it up. Look at Acts chapter 9 and verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. You heard that right, Dorcas. I'm all for biblical names. I named my dogs after Bible characters. I've had a Malachi and a Titus. Uh, my wife's big dog was named Lazarus. 
I thank God my parents never named me anything close to Dorcas, okay? She was always doing good and helping the poor. Verse 37, about that time she became sick and she died. And her body was washed and then placed in an upstairs bedroom. Now, this was not uncommon. Uh, these women were going to treat the body or prepare the body for burial the way the women wanted to prepare the body of Jesus on Sunday morning following the Sabbath. Keep reading. Verse 38. Lydda was near Joppa. That's a city in the region. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Now, they probably want him to minister to the family. I'm not sure. I certainly don't think the text gives any indication that they wanted Peter to come to the house to raise Tabitha from the dead. Maybe they wanted him to preside over the funeral ceremony. We just don't know. Verse 39, Peter went with them. When he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Tabitha had made while she was still with them. We've all been in a setting like this. We've lost someone we care about. We stand kind of in someone's bedroom and we see a photograph or there's that chest of drawers that he refinished or, you know, grandma made that bedspread. And, and we use physical material items to kind of reminisce about the one we've lost. Keep reading. Verse 40. Peter sent them all out of the room. Incidentally, that's the exact same thing Jesus did in Mark chapter 5 when he raised the daughter of Jairus. He sent everybody out of the room. Now it's only Peter and Tabitha in this upstairs bedroom. Watch what happens next. Then he got down on his knees and he prayed. There's no indication from the text that this was some long prayer session. This was probably very brief. It likely only lasted a few moments. And sadly, we're not privy to what Peter prayed. He got down on his knees and prayed. You know why we're probably not privy of the words Peter used in this prayer? Is because we know how the story ends. Tabitha came back to life. And there'd be some crackpot preacher out there that'd be in the cemetery and he'd be quoting these verses the, the prayer Peter prayed. I'm telling you, it would happen. Just like we tend to overemphasize the faith element of prayer, overemphasize the needs, desires part of the prayer, overemphasize the sovereignty of God's part of the prayer, somebody would do that. Grandma would die and somebody would say, hey, go get your Bible. Isn't there that story? Peter prayed a prayer and Tabitha came back to life. Let's pray it over your grandma and see what happens. So we are, sadly. Keep reading. He got down on his knees and prayed. He turned toward the dead woman and he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes. Seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand. He helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows. A couple of reasons for this. First, the widows knew for sure she was dead. They were the ones preparing the body. There was no question that she was dead. And also, they missed her the most. She was part of the group. And they presented her to them alive. Verse 42. This became known all over Joppa. And watch this. Many people believed in the Lord. I submit to you, church. God's plan and purpose was that many people in the area would believe on the name of Jesus Christ. Not that Tabitha would die and be raised to life. Tabitha dying, being raised to life, was the means by which God accomplished his goal, his purpose 
which was that many would believe in the Lord. Look, this is important. Make sure you get this. Peter was not trying to convince God to raise Tabitha from the dead when he prayed. Instead, Peter was searching for an understanding of God's will. That, my friend, is why we should pray. Let me read that again. Peter was not trying. When he prayed, and it was just Peter and Tabitha, Peter was not trying to twist God's arm into raising Tabitha from the dead. What Peter was doing was he was searching for the will of God. God, what is your purpose here? God, what do you want from me? God, how can I help this grieving community? That's how we should pray. Two great prayers that Jesus prayed. Very, very interesting in their contrast. First, there's the prayer when he raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. You familiar with this prayer? Lazarus has been dead four days. Jesus shows up. Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, they're weeping. The friends, the community, they're mourning. Jesus says, roll away the stone. And then to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus prays about a six-second prayer. It's 35 words. It goes something like this. Father, thank you for hearing my prayer. I know that you always hear my prayer, but I said that for the benefit of those listening now, that they may believe that you sent me. Lazarus, come forth. Interesting. To raise a man from the dead, Jesus prayed six seconds and 35 words. But now, what about the Garden of Gethsemane? The night of his betrayal. The very next morning, Jesus would be crucified. Remember this prayer, Father? If it is possible... Let this cup of torture and humiliation and death pass over me. Nevertheless, not about what I want, what you want. You know how long that prayer took? Almost all night. When Jesus was trying to get his mind around God's will in prayer, it lasted for hours. Remember, so long that his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, he asked them, hey, wait right here, watch over me, pray for me, pray with me, and they fell asleep. So think about it. What a contrast. Church, we're going to pray for the resurrection of Lazarus. Hurry up, because it's only going to last six seconds and 35 words. We wouldn't do it that way, would we? No, 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 no. We'd contact everybody we know on Facebook. We'd try to pack this church house. We'd have people signed up on some 24-hour revolving prayer list because we're trying to twist the arm of God to do something amazing, right? But some of you don't even ever pray to get your mind around what God wants you to do when you know you're not going to like it. And that took Jesus hours. Isn't that an interesting juxtaposition between two kinds of prayer? Here's what we know for sure about prayer. Four quick things, I'll quit. Number one, all requests are subject to the sovereignty of God. You ought to know that, right? There's no puny prayer from Mike Holt that's going to change the plan of God, period. I don't care if I pray it believing. I don't care if I pray it repetitively. I don't care if I have 713 Facebook friends praying with me. God is sovereign. Number two, God loves us so much 
that he desires us to ask, to participate in the process. Do you realize that the picture in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock, is one of a father to a child? I'm your father. I want to provide for you. I want to care for you. So ask me. Share your desires. God's the same way. Number three, we have to ask in faith. Faith in God, not faith in faith, not faith in my ability to believe harder than you. That's why I get more of my prayers answered than you do. What are we, 12? Faith in God, even when he says no. And number four, kind of wraps it all up. Prayer's about relationship, not requests. Look, church, I so want you to pray. I so want you to pray. I want you to pray for your family, and I want you to pray for your circumstances, and I want you to pray for me, and I want you to pray for this church, but I want you to do so in a way that honors God, that strengthens your relationship with your heavenly Father, not in a way that is driven by your requests. You see, as your desires begin to reflect his desires for you, you enter into a much more meaningful faith walk because the relationship now is growing. That's how we're supposed to pray. Now, let's do just that. Father, you are good to us to give us plenty of information in your word. Teach us how to pray. We not only have the model prayer, the Lord's prayer. We not only have multiple prayers by Jesus and the apostles to learn from. Lord, we also have knowledge that you're patient with us. And even though many of us started down this road early on of turning you into Santa Claus or some kind of lucky rabbit's foot when we prayed, you're patient, you're abiding with us, you're, you're careful to bring us along. Teach us to pray, I pray, knowing full well that while we have an audience with our Creator who is sovereign, you desire us to ask. And when we ask, we need to pray believing. And all of these things, I pray, believing, in the name of Christ, amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you make it a fantastic week. I'm going to see you next time.